Welcome to Stuck in Misery, the premier Midwest sports talk podcast. I'm your host, Mark Bergen. Today's episode of Stuck in Misery Classics takes us back 41 years ago, July 12th, 1979. It was Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park in Chicago, Illinois. Chicago White Sox were set to host the Detroit Tigers for a twi-night doubleheader, and it ended in a riot. At the climax of the event, a crate filled with disco records was blown up on the field between games. Many of those in attendance went to see the explosion rather than baseball. People rushed onto the field after the detonation, and the playing field was so damaged by the explosion and by the fans that the White Sox had to forfeit the second game to the Tigers. And so to mark the 41st anniversary, I wanted to speak with my father, Paul Bergen. He attended Disco Demolition, so we welcome him in now. Dad, I want to start out, what do you remember most about Disco Demolition? First of all, welcome everybody. (laughs) Stuck in misery. I would also like to say, before we start getting into the details of that evening, on your other podcast, Mark, just a couple uh, weeks ago, you were with your regular co-host, Ike Taylor, and you got to interview Dion Sanders. So today, your guest of honor is me. I would say, uh, with this episode, you really are stuck in misery, but... <laughs> I gave anyway, yourself some credit. <laughs> well, we'll see when it's all said and done. <laughs> um, the thing that kind of comes to mind when I think of disco demolition is kind of a lot of stuff all over the place. It's one of those things where it's like you, you, it was such an event that it's kind of cool to say that you were there, but I would never want to go through anything like that again. It was sort of an all's well that ends well thing to a degree, I think, because I don't think there were any deaths or any serious injuries. I think with the research that I did, there were, when when the dust settled, there were 39 people um, arrested for disorderly conduct. And considering everything that went on, I think, you know, that, that everybody from Steve Dahl and WLUP on down to Bill Veck and Mike Veck and the White Sox people were, were very fortunate. So how did you even get the idea to attend the event? Well, evidently there was some publicity. I had listened to the, the radio station WLUP, which was known as The Loop for short. And in fact, they had a logo with a L-O-O-P, like a white lettering in script with a black background. And by the way, that was on all kinds of t-shirts. I would say probably at least half the people there had these black loop t-shirts on. I did not, my friends did not, but I'm sure we had just simply heard about it, you know, listening to the radio station. I listened to Stephen Gary fairly regularly back then. And so the promotional event allowed those in attendance to bring a disco record for 98 cents. Again, WLUP was on 97.9. So. Yes. 90, 98 cents to bring a disco record. I'm assuming you brought at least one. Did you bring several or how did that work? You know, I was just thinking about that before we went, went, went on here and I really don't remember. I don't think you had to. I think as long as you paid your, your, your 98 cents, your buck, you were able to uh, get in. <laughs> 
what happened over time, and this is more from uh, what I read, so many people were, well, first of all, so many people were trying to get in, and most of them did bring their records, that after a while they had more records than they could handle. And so they stopped collecting them from people, but people were allowed to bring them in, which was part of what could have been a very dangerous situation. Part of what turned out to be some of the problems with disco demolition is that people that brought these records in, and there were hundreds probably that were not collected and people had in the seats, they started taking the records out of the record albums and whipping them out on the field like a Frisbee. And a good friend of mine that you know, one of my teaching colleague friends, went to college at Carthage College in Beloit, Wisconsin. Beloit is right on Lake Michigan. Carthage is right on Lake Michigan. Beautiful campus. I've been there myself. What my friend said, what they used to do, can you imagine young college men doing something like this? They would go down to the beach. They would take old record albums that they didn't want anymore. One of the dorms faced the lake. It had a stone facade. So they didn't really do any damage to the buildings. But they started whipping these unused, unwanted record albums against the side of the building just to watch them shatter. Okay. Friend told me a story that he and his buddies were on the beach doing this. One of their friends saw them. He was in the building looking out, looking down. He was probably up on the third, fourth floor of this building. He went to lean out to communicate a little bit better with the people down on the beach. He didn't see that somebody had already launched one of these albums. And as he leaned out, it was in his blind spot. He came down, hit him right in the side of the face. Blood started spurting everywhere, and it was like, and they were getting ready for some kind of a formal or something. That's another all's well that ends well uh, situation from what, the way I understand the story that this guy was not hurt seriously, but you could see what kind of damage could happen. And these disco records were flying all over the place, especially from the upper deck, which is where I was sitting. So I think it was uh, Tigers outfielder Rusty Staub. He had played for uh, a bunch of teams, Montreal, uh, New York Mets, but he was with Detroit in 79. And as these records started flying, he, I think he was the DH, so he was sitting on the bench. As the Tigers came off the field between one of the innings, he said, look, guys, when you go back out there, he said, you all better have batting helmets on. And the entire team did. When they went back on the field for defense, everybody – had a batting helmet on. Now, nobody got hit with an album that I can recall, at least not a player. God knows what could have happened with like the fans in the lower deck. I had one of my two Donner's Grove buddies. We were talking about this yesterday at breakfast because all three of us were at Disco Demolition. But the one buddy was sitting separately from us because me and the other guy and some other friends, we were in the upper deck uh, down the third base line so we were kind of looking, you know, down into foul territory, third base into left field. And he was down in the lower deck, and he said there were records kind of like flying all around him and breaking and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So anyway, that was sort of like part one of what 
sort of turned out to be a very dangerous situation. I don't remember seeing this, but in some of the stuff that I did in terms of researching this, I guess people brought firecrackers in because even Steve Dahl said once the demonstration started, people were throwing firecrackers at him. And like he said, they were his friends. They were his fans. So that was another thing going on. And just to show how overwhelmed security was, we were probably about 20 rows back from the front of the upper deck in, in the left field. And the, the third baseline, I should say. About 10 rows, 15 rows in front of us, much closer to the edge, a group of guys had snuck in a case of low and brow beer bottles. As they finished their bottles, they started lobbing them out onto the field. So, you know, the fact that nobody got hurt in all this is really amazing. And I don't know if any fans did, but players did not. Anyway, all this was going on during game one, okay? And the reason it was a twilight doubleheader is they were making up a game that had gotten rained out about a month earlier between the White Sox and the Tigers. But all this is going on during game one. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So from the research that I did, it says that there were at least 50,000 fans at Comiskey Park, which was the largest crowd for a White Sox game ever. And so to give some people some perspective, that was up from 15,000 the day before. Comiskey mm-hmm. Park had a capacity of about 44,000 fans. So you're talking about a place that's well over capacity. The helmets of the Detroit Tigers outfielders in game one is incredible because imagine if you saw something like that now in Major League Baseball, you wouldn't. They would stop play just to make sure that the players were safe, to make sure everyone's safe for play to continue. So because you were sitting in the upper deck with your friends, I take it once the demonstration started after game one that you did not rush the field. What do you remember about that? Well... (laughs) a lot (laughs) first of all game one ended and people were pretty rowdy I just want to back up to something on like you just said for something like that that to happen in today's day and age in any sport is almost inconceivable and it probably is and you're probably wondering where was security in all this allowing all these records to be flipped from the research that I did there were, like you just said, it was probably the biggest crowd in Old Comiskey Park history. Um, there were people who could not get in. There were 20,000 people, from what I've read, outside the park wanting to get in or wanting to party or wanting to be part of it. They started storming the gates and they were like climbing fences, climbing through windows, uh, trying to crash the party. And I, I'm sure many of those 50 or they even said it might have been 55,000 people that, that, that jammed in, uh, probably a lot of them didn't pay a dime, you know, didn't have the 98 cents, didn't have the record. Security was just overwhelmed, but they tried to stem that tide. So they left the playing area, they, they left the seats, they left the grandstands to try to tamp down on the people who were trying to sneak in. So there wasn't enough security to go around to try to at least stop some of those people from throwing those records. So that's, that's kind of what I, I wanted to mention. Okay, so as I'm remembering this, game one ends. 
the promotion is about to start. They had like some kind of a big canister or a, a collectible thing out in center field. And the records that they were going to blow up were in this thing. So Steve and Gary enter the playing field from center field. They come out the gate. They're in like this army Jeep half track or whatever. Steve Dahl had an army helmet on at fatigues. I think Gary Meyer was in regular clothes. So they started driving this Jeep from center field into left field into the left field foul territory down the third base line in foul territory. So they weren't going to, you know, rip up the, 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 the infield. And as they got close to the grandstand, some of the people tried to rush the field just to go up and probably shake Gary's, Stephen Gary's hand or get an autograph or whatever. Security handled every one of those individual situations and got him back in the, in the stands. So they're going around, and, you know, maybe one or two people tried to do that as they were rounding the, the uh, infield. Security handled all that. They get back to center field. Steve Dahl gets out and says something like, well, everybody, you're part of the biggest anti-disco demonstration in history. Uh, congratulations, and we're going to blow these records up real good, which they did. So however many, they probably had 100 records in there. Boom, you know, it goes off like a fireworks display. But now, of course, you got shattered records all over the outfield. How are you going to clean all that up and get and be ready for game two? So there's a problem right there. Gary gets back in the Jeep, from what I remember. Uh, Steve gets back in the Jeep with Gary. They go driving back through that uh, fence in center field, shut the gate. Looks like everything was over. Looks like everything was done. What I remember, and I had a great view of this, because I'm looking right down at it from that third base side seat that I had. One guy jumped from the left field grandstands. An old Comiskey, by the way, only had bleachers in dead center field. So left field and right field were like regular grandstands with a lower deck and an upper deck. So a guy jumps from the lower deck onto the warning track in left field, which is probably a good 20-foot drop. I mean, he, he could have broken an ankle or a leg or whatever. Of course he didn't. He gets up. Security isn't paying attention to anything anymore. He starts sprinting from the left field warning track to second base. And as he's running and getting closer to second base, he's in a dead sprint, okay? I don't remember if any security people tried to get to him, but it was too late because he was just too far gone, too far out there. The closer he's getting to second base, the crowd notices this. The roar is intensifying, getting louder, louder. He slides into second. The place goes nuts. <laughs> He pulls second base out, holds it up over his head, and people swarmed the field like ants. They were coming from everywhere. More people were jumping from the left field grandstands. But they were coming out, you know, all on third base, home plate, first base. The field was just swarmed, as you have probably seen some from, from pictures and film and stuff like that. So there was literally nothing that could be done. So all this is going on. The, the fire is still burning in center field from where the records had blown up. Over a matter of time, people started lighting bonfires in the grandstands. 
I remember seeing some, uh, whatever debris or stuff that they had, they were, of course there were plenty of lighters because people were not just drinking beer or the hard stuff they, they brought in. If you had never smoked marijuana before in your life, you at least got a taste of it that night because the, the, it, it was everywhere. It was just, so anyway, that's going on. I also remember a guy from the upper deck in left field climbing down the foul pole okay so from the upper deck to the lower deck is a good 50 feet at least and he's climbing down the mesh part of the foul pole in bare feet and i remember looking at this guy saying to myself thinking to myself i'm going to watch a human being die because this guy is probably he's probably drunk he's probably high combination of all that stuff He's going to lose his footing. He's going to slip and not just fall down to the lower deck. He's going to fall all the way to the plane surface. Well, he didn't. And he also got down on the playing field. Now, my friend and I had a little bit of a dispute on this, and maybe he's right about this. My friend said that was the guy that slid into second base. He might have been right about that. I, I don't know. But I, I remember a guy sliding into second that started everything. And I do remember a guy climbing down the, the foul ball. From my personal perspective, we're watching all this going on and we're realizing that they may never get these people off the field. So the friends that I were with, we looked at each other and we decided we're just, we're just gonna get out of here. This, this is not a good situation. People could maybe start getting rowdy, getting, getting violent, that sort of thing. So we left, we got to our car, which we had parked in a, a neighbor's yard, okay? And, and the, some of the locals were taking advantage and charging like 10 bucks a car, which was just ridiculous for parking prices back then. And we remembered that we were one of the first ones there. So we knew there were cars parked behind us and we thought, oh man, are we stuck here? And thank goodness, the car that was behind us left before we did. We had a clear shot out and we got out of that area quickly and easily. So that's the end of my personal experience of disco de demolition. Got home in time to see some of the stuff on the news. And we actually went to a bar back in our area. You know, Pete and Johnny's where, where we live. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. Forget was, I forget what it was called then, but we went there. <clears throat> we walk in. We knew a lot of the uh, regulars. They're looking at us like, what the heck's going on there? And we're like, yeah, it was pretty wild. We were there. Of course, nobody believed us. They're like, <laughs> you're full of you, nobody. <laughs> so anyways, there's a lot there to process and unpack too. <laughs> no one died. Up to 30 people had minor injuries. There were reported 39 arrests. You mentioned people burning fires on the field in the stands, did you feel unsafe at any point? Oh yeah, yeah. I kind of felt unsafe most of the time that I was there. But I, I wanna say one thing, because what the people that stormed the field did is inexcusable, but there was no violence among the people that had done that. Although I think I read somewhere where there were some minor fights that broke out, but it just seemed like everybody was going to go have a good time. In fact, 
Mike Vec was quoted as saying, for a lot of these people, it was their Woodstock. And I suppose maybe in their minds it was to compare this to Woodstock in terms of cultural significance is crazy. But in terms of a bunch of people having kind of an unexpectedly good time with a bunch of strangers, that part was probably true. Before we left, I did want to mention that we were we stayed long enough to hear Bill Vec get on the public address system and begging people to get off the field. Please, we've got a game two to play, blah, blah. Nobody paid any attention to him. So then Harry Carey came on, and he tried to be a little bit more jovial about it. Hey, everybody, oh, glad you're having a good time. And, you know, you start thinking about getting back to your seats because we got another ball game to play here. Uh, nobody listened much to Harry, which was pretty unusual. And, I, and that was part of what I thought. I was, I'm like, if people aren't going to listen to Harry Carey, they're not going to listen to anybody. The last guy who tried to get him off the field was Steve Dahl himself. Because, like I said, he left the field. He goes into, you know, the outfield area behind the fence in, in Sox Park. He thinks the whole thing is over. He goes out into the streets, I understand. And people were coming up and shaking his hand and all this stuff. They got him back inside the stadium because they were going to talk to him. I think Harry was going to talk to him between games and just interview him about the, uh, you know, demonstration and all that stuff. Well, that never happened, obviously, because game two never got played. But Steve Dahl tried to get the people to, to leave the field, and they wouldn't do it. And that's when I kind of thought, you know what, it's, it's, it's going to take a huge show of police force to get this done. We don't want to be any part of that. So, yeah, I mean, where we were sitting, I was never afraid of getting, like, hit by a record because they were all going out in front of us. But uh, who knows what, you know, could have happened. And once people started milling around and everybody, it's like, now let's, let's just get out of here. And it, it, it's a good thing we did. One other thing, too, I wanted, wanted to mention about the size of this crowd. And you mentioned it, Mark. The game before, they only had 15,000 people there. And the day of disco demolition, at least the way Steve Dahl tells the story from the little bit of research I've done, they didn't expect much more than that 15,000. They had done some other anti-disco demonstrations, very locally, shopping malls, stuff like that, nothing, nothing of this magnitude. So Stephen Gary and Mike Vec were expecting 20,000. They thought maybe this, this uh, thing would bring about 5,000 extra people. Mike Vec planned security for 35,000 people. So that was another thing. Once it became this overwhelming thing that nobody really saw coming, you know, because a lot of people just, they, they, they didn't buy tickets in advance. They bought their tickets at the gate or they just stormed the gates. I don't think anybody expected the crowd to be that big. Just for the listeners, I want to point out, Harry Carey was the White Sox announcer from 1971 through the 1981 season before he became the Chicago Cubs announcer. So you did hear that correctly. If you're listening to this thinking, wait a second, Harry Carey is the Cubs announcer. Why is he at a White Sox game? He was the White Sox announcer for a decade. So I just want to point that out. I also want to ask you about, and just talk to you a little bit about White Sox owner, Bill Beck. This was a guy who is no stranger to strange promotions. He was the guy behind the exploding scoreboard at Comiskey Park. He was the guy where in 1951, he sent up Eddie Goodell to the plate. Now, Eddie Goodell was a three foot seven inch 
person who is the smallest player ever to appear in a major league baseball game. And so just what do you remember about White Sox owner Bill Veck? And then again, his son, Mike Beck, was in charge of promotions for the team. What do you remember about their roles in Disco Demolition? Steve Dahl obviously caught the brunt of the criticism afterwards. And certainly he deserves at least a share of that. But in the research that I'd done, the White Sox had done a disco night a couple of years before, which I guess was fairly successful. They wanted to do an anti-disco night because Steve Dahl had started this. Steve Dahl actually, before he was at the Loop, WLUP, he was at another FM station called WDAI. Disco demolition happened in 1979. Christmas Eve of 1978, Steve Dahl, a rock jock, got fired from WDAI because they instantly changed format from classic album rock to disco, and he was let go. So when The Loop picked him up, and they were unabashedly album rock, even before Steve Dahl got there, they were more than happy to embrace him, and he had some personal angst against disco because it basically cost him his first job. So I think that was kind of the fuel to his fire behind all of his anti-disco stuff, not just this, this one incident, but all, because he, on his radio show, he would mock disco. He would play disco records and then grab the needle and just start grinding it. And then he would take the record and break it and he'd have an explosion sound bite drop or whatever you call it. So there was a lot of this leading up to disco demolition. So that's kind of Steve Dahl's part of it. The White Sox, who did not have a very good team that year, and probably the year before, probably the year after that, they were kind of looking for anything and everything to bring fans to the ballpark. And Vec had done this kind of stuff for years. I mean, going way back to the like late 40s and 50s when he owned the Cleveland Indians, he started doing stuff like that as well. In fact, I think the first exploding scoreboard was in Cleveland. And then he brought that to uh, Comiskey Park later on. So, you know, Vec had pulled stuff like pulled that kind of stuff off all the time. Uh, one of my favorites was Greek Night, when he would have about two dozen belly dancers out there as, as part of the deal. And they're serving <laughs> Greek food from the concession stands. So this was kind of Vec's shtick, okay? He was a very innovative owner in that regard. But in terms of his operating a baseball team, he was very old school. So that's kind of what I remember about him. Basically, I remember him very favorably, a real character, uh, well-read man. People generally loved him. And so I know that he just had to be dying inside. And, and Mike Vec too, because, yeah, they're glad they had this many people show up, but they didn't expect it to get out of hand in this, in this manner. And a franchise owner who was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1991. I also wanted to ask you about two years before Disco Demolition, the movie Saturday Night Fever came out starring Johnny Travolta. And that movie helped popularize disco. So why was there this sentiment against disco music from people who supported rock and roll? Well, you know, going back to what I just said, I think Steve Dahl, and I don't know if, how, how much he got into this on the air, but obviously for the reasons I just mentioned, he had a personal ax to grind. 
you know, because it, it cost him his job. I think there was a feeling that disco music was kind of light and frothy and really not full of a lot of social content, dance music, both musically and in terms of the lyrics, there was nothing really profound going on, at least in terms of the way a lot of people viewed it, probably myself too. I had very mixed feelings though about the way Steve Dahl went into this whole anti-disco thing, not just on this particular night, but you know, leading up to it. I've always been kind of a live and let live kind of a person. But myself personally, I just thought that the disco was was kind of light and, and, and not as substantive, especially as some of the other music that was going on. I considered myself mildly anti-disco. I was more of a rock person, okay? That's what I liked. But at the end of the day, when you're out at a bar and you're in a club and the girls are dancing to the disco music, guess what? <laughs> We love disco. <laughs> so did disco really die after disco demolition? Because I've, I've heard some things where it's like, if you look at just the, the top of the charts, a lot of you know what was popular in the mid to late 70s in terms of disco music really started to fade out once you got into the 80s. Well, I think disco probably evolved into what they now call club music. I do remember... It was the early 80s, and my summer job for teaching was at a uh, day camp. And one morning, one of the nicest kids in the day camp, she was a young African-American girl, she's probably about 12, 13 years old, just, I mean, almost a stereotypical image. She comes walking into the camp with her boombox on her shoulder, and cranked up, max volume was rock on to Electric Avenue. So this is the early 80s. So some form of disco was still going on. I'm probably not the best person to ask that question because I was never the biggest disco fan. I didn't really care all that much. But I also remember the experience of another song, traveling down to Florida on spring break, driving uh, down to Fort Myers to visit your grandma and, and, and grandpa, and one of the hit songs came on the radio, and I cranked it with the windows down, The Heart of Rock and Roll by Huey Lewis. And it was almost like that started to bring old-fashioned rock and roll back. Why the two camps had to be that divided, I, I, I don't know. Because there's certainly all kinds of music now, and you sort of pick the genre that you like, or you, you know, go amongst them. As we start to wrap up here on Stuck in Misery, is there anything else that our listeners should know about Disco Demolition and your experience, again, actually being there, witnessing it, getting to see it firsthand that they should know about? Like I said, I think everybody dodged major bullets through the fact that no one was seriously hurt or killed. Dodging major bullets in terms of you know, what, what could have happened to the players in terms of safety or how much more damage could have been done to the ballpark itself. There were games later on in 1979 that were postponed and sort of the urban mythology is it was because of what happened on the night of July 12th. That's really not true. Bilvec, again, because the, the 
team was hurting and people were not coming to the ballpark for the baseball, scheduled several other rock concerts, which is, is still done even in, uh, in other stadiums today. Wrigley has all kinds of rock concerts up yeah. the first day. Some of these were scheduled on bad weather nights. And some of these other concerts really ripped up the field worse than a, a disco night. I remember going to a game probably about a month later and coming up from the grandstands, walking up the stairs. I was coming up on the first base side that time, taking a look at, at the field. This was, this was a day game. I could tell just by looking at the field that there was no way you could play baseball on there. They were trying to place fresh sod on all these ripped out, torn up parts of the outfield in, in right field. And the groundskeepers are trying to stomp it down. There's no way that's going to hold. You, you could play on that. So the umpires called this game off too, probably in August, whatever it was. And so everybody had to go home. You know, they, they, they called this game off about a half an hour before it was supposed to start. They should have called it off the night before, or at least, you know, two hours before the game. So you get all the way there and, you know, you've already paid parking. You're not going to get a refund for that. So you go back home and, and um, Vec did refund the ticket. You could either get a new ticket or a refund. So I get my $3.50 refund check in the mail and it just kind of ticked me off. So I wrote a letter back to Bill, Bill Vec and I said, dear Mr. Vec, and I wrote this in, in a, a very nice terms, no profanity, nothing. I said, dear Mr. Vec, I think you owe me a little more than just $3.50. There's my $5 parking fee that I never got reimbursed for. And I probably used about five gallons of gas at whatever gas price was there. You know, so you owe me the gas money instead of $3.50, I think you owe me like $8.75. <laughs> so I get a letter back where he very nicely kind of told me, uh, no, <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> so you got a response. I, I, I did. I did. And I have one more Bill Vex story several years later after he had sold the White Sox, I was at a bachelor party uh, at Old Sox Park. And I was with several friends coming back from the men's room, going back to our seats. One of my friends tells the other guy, who was actually the bachelor we were celebrating, he said, you know, even though Bill Vex retired, his name is in the phone book and fans just call him up to talk about either baseball when he was the owner of the White Sox, they would field their suggestions for the team, or if they just wanted to talk about life. And this guy goes, oh, you're nuts. There's, there's no way he would do that. So to show you how far back in time this was, we're walking past a phone booth in Comiskey Park with a phone book. Go over, grab the phone book, <laughs> back, call up Bill Veck. He answers the phone. Okay, and my two <laughs> friends who were, were, big, were big White Sox fans are talking with them, and they asked me if I wanted to get on. I'm like, no, first, first of all, it's, it's his party. Let, let Jeff talk. And then my friend Dave, so I think you know who I'm referring to here. When Jeff gets on the phone, he was so blown away. He's like, oh, Bill, I can't believe you're taking my call. This is so great. He's like, you got to come back and get the White Sox back. These owners are ruining the team. you got to come back and fix everything. <laughs> and we talked with Bill Vack from Sox Park for probably about 10 minutes from a payphone. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Certainly. I should, Cer I, I think I'm going to end on that story. <laughs> Certainly a different era. Dad, this was fantastic. We're going to have to do this again for your sports memories. I know you went to the all-star game way back in the sixties in Cleveland. So we're, we're going to have to do this again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on this morning and telling us your memories about disco demolition. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy listening to your experiences. Again, physically being there at that historic time, 41 years ago. Thank you. Well, do, do try to make me look good, Mark. I know I was rambling and I probably should have had more water <laughs> or whatever. Let me, let me leave. Speaking of, of a future story that might be about that 63 all-star game in Cleveland with a tease. I have a Roberto Clemente story that I will share at that time. All right. Very good. Very <laughs> good. <listeners> paying. <laughs> That's did it better than a lot of people who actually work in the industry do it. And so we'll wrap up there. For my dad, Paul Bergen, I'm Mark Bergen. Thank you for listening to Stuck in Misery. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We also just got added to Stitcher. So again, please leave us a review there. Thank you so much to the listeners. Take care. So long. We'll see you next time.